All right, good morning, y'all. Good morning, good morning. Thanks for joining us. We are jumping back into the book of Romans this morning, but before we do so, uh, I would like to take a few moments and, and pray for us and uh, pray for uh, our country. Um, this, uh, this Wednesday at noon, uh, we will see uh, once again uh, the transition of power that takes place every four years in our country one way or another. Um, and this Wednesday, um, President Biden will be inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States, right? But true to 2020 and now 2021, uh, this inauguration is unlike any other. D.C. currently is on lockdown. Uh, I have a, a very good friend, uh, Bill Rydell, who is a pastor in Washington, D.C. And uh, so I get an interesting, I, he, he's part of a cohort that I'm part of, and we, we literally text one another every single day. Uh, and so I get an interesting view of the events from uh, someone who is actually living in that environment. He had to pre-record his sermon this week because both his home and the church in which they meet are, are within the, the zone that has been locked down around the Capitol uh, for safety reasons. Um, Bill has had to uh, has chosen to take his family and leave D.C. for the next week um, because of the stress uh, and the limited movement, the stress of, of threats of violence. Um, he was actually and somewhat grateful because they meet in one of the historic uh, AME churches uh, in D.C., African-American, historic African-American church, which would potentially make it a target for some of the uh, right-wing neo-fascist groups that are threatening violence um, in D.C. in the coming week. Uh, so I want to pray. I want to pray for the events of the coming week and pray for our country. So would you please pray with me? Lord, this is a time of anxiety and, and anger and, and, and mistrust. Uh, and we pray for the safety of our leaders. We pray, Lord, for the peaceful transfer of power that has been the hallmark of the American system of democracy. We do pray for uh, the physical safety of our elected officials. We pray for the safety of the police officers and the National Guard and those that will be placing themselves in harm's way in order to protect um, our elected officials and the processes of our government. We pray for those who live in D.C., who serve in D.C., who are being adversely and indirectly but directly affected by the events of this week. We pray for grace and protection. We pray against those who would seek to exercise the worldly power of violence, to intimidate, to hurt, to kill. We pray, Lord, that you would shake, shake the systems that can and should be shaken, rebuke the pride of the wicked, make weak their strength, and frustrate their plans. Lord, as your word tells us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 17, ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of many waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but you, Lord, will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. 
Lord, you are the king above all the nations, and we commit the events of the coming week to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This weekend is also um, the weekend that we commemorate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., a man who uh, stepped into the violence of worldly power, confident that love could overcome hate. He led a movement that faced the, the raw and unrestrained hatred and violence of racism and white supremacy. And he did it with a calm strength of love. Um, images that uh, we've all seen from that era, lunch counter protests, the freedom rides, and the peaceful marches uh, set a very, very stark contrast as African-American men and women placed their bodies at the front lines of um, the movement of freedom toward justice uh, as, as images of, of peaceful black men and women being attacked, insulted, physically beaten, and at times killed, and yet they themselves uh, lifted no hand to protect themselves or harm others. Um, Reverend James Lawson was one of King's mentors and a, a, uh, a co-worker with King, and he taught um, the, the philosophy of nonviolence that uh, was at the heart of that movement. And one of the things that he taught them was that it's not enough that you don't strike back. You must actually love the one who strikes you. I was reading about that this week in a biography of John Lewis, and, and it just... It just struck me the courage and the strength it takes to love like that. But they were convinced that hatred, when it had exhausted itself like waves against a rock, could not overcome love. That it either had to change, that it would recognize its own um, darkness and move toward repentance, or it would recede back into the darkness and consume itself. King taught his followers to recognize that the problems in America weren't out there. That the problems in America weren't them, they were in here. Uh, and part of working for justice was working against the self-righteous pride that justified injustice. As we justified our own violence in our hearts and in our minds toward those that we disagree with, dislike and want to silence. King led his followers to the path of love by leading them to the path of repentance. And honestly, I think uh, as the church today, we need to follow that same path. The best way we can serve our country in this time, the best way we can be witnesses of Christ is to follow the path of love and to be a beacon on a hill that shines a very different light than the partisan bickering uh, or the seek to destroy silence and uh, diminish others. So I'm going to indirectly invite Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to pray for us this morning. I'm going to read you one of the prayers that he prayed over his congregation uh, and allow those words to speak to us this morning. So once again, will you pray with me as I read this prayer? O oh, thou eternal God, out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being, we humbly confess that we have not loved Thee 
with our hearts, souls, and minds, and we have not loved our neighbors as Christ loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial loves revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and hate our enemies. We go the first mile but dare not travel the second. We forgive but dare not forget. And so we look within ourselves. So as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But thou, O God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us what we could have been, but have failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will. Give us the devotion to love thy will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. This morning, we are heading back into the book of Romans. We started studying Romans in the fall of 2019, which feels like a decade ago, appropriately, right? Plan to spend 2020 working our way through this book, but we ended up leaving Romans fairly abruptly last March when it became clear that the pandemic uh, was settling in and was not going away quickly. And, um, and so we stepped away from Romans, um, honestly, right in the middle of a thought, right in the middle of a paragraph, because I felt like we would do well to take some time and consider some verses that spoke directly into our shared suffering and our shared experience. Um, and, and this morning, I want to go back, right? Um, but in order to do that, I want to take a little bit of time to help us step back into the context, right? Um, we're stepping into Romans chapter 4, which is the middle of a section, and we're actually stepping right into the middle of a paragraph. And so I do want to take some time to give us a quick overview so that we have a sense of, of where we've been and, and where we are going. Uh, believe it or not, today is actually the 16th message in the book of Romans. Uh, so we've spent quite a bit of time already digging in. And if you would like to go back and engage this previous content, you absolutely can. Um, we, we set up a new website. Uh, Lori has helped transition all of our, our content over to a new website uh, that is a little more streamlined, works better on mobile, and, and is better equipped to handle the streaming of the service on Sunday mornings. Um, but part of that is we, we ended up losing um, the catalog of all, of all of our previous sermons on the website. We didn't lose the sermons, but we, we lost them on the website. We've, we've had to manually migrate them. And uh, for today, Lori, over the last week, has migrated all of the previous Roman sermons over to the website. So they are available. If you would like to go back and engage the material uh, from our previous messages, that is available. If you would like to help Lori with the migration of more sermons, uh, all you got to do is let her know. You don't have to be a huge techie. You do have to have a computer, and you have to be willing to and able to follow directions. That's really all it comes down to. Uh, but if you have some time and would be willing to invest that time to help Lori migrate, uh, we have 10 years worth of sermons that, that need to be migrated over to the new website. Um, she would be happy for the help, and you can reach out to her um, by just, I guess the easiest way would be to email info at trailheadonline.org. If you do that, she will get it, and you can help. All right, so this morning, what I'd like to do is go back into some of the context and talk a little bit about 
uh, Paul's developing thoughts so we can understand um, where we're at in the book. And, and this morning, um, what I want you to see is that our pride and our fear, um, we, we lean on our pride and, and, and we run from our fear to justify ourselves, all the while faith invites us to simply rest in grace. That, that's the thought that we're going to be running to this morning, right? In, in, our, in our verse in, in chapter 4, verse 13. Before we unpack that verse, though, I want to do a little bit of review. And I'm going to actually begin by talking a little bit about the context of the book, the audience, and the purpose, um, which sounds super academic, but the reality is it's super important, right? To understand what Paul is saying, you need to understand why Paul is saying it. You need to understand who he's saying it to, right? The motivation behind the words and the audience of the words. If we don't understand those things, we end up missing a lot of the nuance of the words, right? We can still study the book, but we're going to miss um, some of the subtlety of, of what Paul is actually doing in this, in this beautiful letter. When we look at Romans 15, which is all the way at the end of Romans, uh, we discover that Paul is, is telling the Romans that he wants to come visit them so that he can spend some time with them, so that he can then launch board from them uh, to, to Spain, right? Up to this point, he has been working uh, primarily on the northeastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, right? So on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea is, is Israel. Um, today, this would be modern-day Syria and, and Turkey, um, Paul, over the course of his missionary journeys, has done most of his work in this northeastern portion, um, sharing the gospel with communities that had never heard it, planting new churches, um, establishing those churches, writing to those churches, helping those churches navigate the difficulties of, of being a church in the first century when they didn't even know what being a church was with this brand new faith and uh, all of those things, right? And so he writes to the Romans, who are, of course, in, in Italy, and he says to them, because he's been working primarily in you know, the farthest west he's gone is Greece up to this point. Um, he says, I'm going to come to you, but for the purpose of going through you to Spain, right? With the, with the dream of, of taking the gospel to Spain and what we would call modern day Europe uh, to the north, right? Um, so what I want you to see is that this letter was actually designed to help prepare the Romans for this visit. And ultimately, it was written uh, to, to get them on board uh, with supporting him financially, that they would actually back him, pray for him, partner with him, right? He's never just looking for money. He's looking for genuine spiritual partnership, people that will pray for him and, and, and support him financially as, as he takes these steps of faith into brand new territories to share the gospel. So this letter is designed to help prepare the Romans for this visit and then ultimately um, for his support uh, for the journey that is going to be based out of Rome into Spain. All right, so that's the purpose. Now here's where it gets difficult. Uh, Rome is uh, a primarily Gentile, um, non, that means non-Jewish congregation with a, a very prominent Jewish subpopulation. So it is predominantly non-Jewish, uh, but has a strong Jewish subpopulation. We don't know how the, the church in Rome got started, right? Paul didn't plant it. We don't have any record of anybody going there and sharing the gospel. It could have been that, that there were Jews who had traveled from Rome 
to Jerusalem uh, on Pentecost when, when uh, right after Jesus was raised from the dead and, and they heard the preaching of the gospel uh, through that first band of disciples and, and that they became believers and potentially stayed in Jerusalem for a period of time with the congregation of new believers, but eventually went back home to Rome and took the gospel with them, right? That's possible. It's possible as well because Rome was such a financial hub that, that uh, over the years, uh, as people became believers, some of them would be traveling with commerce. They would have traveled to Rome, um, not only with their goods to sell, but with the gospel to share. And it's possible they shared the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection with the Jewish population there. It is pretty clear, though, that Rome's first and, and, and manifestation of the church was predominantly Jewish. Right? And, that, and that's true, really, for all the ancient world. The gospel read, uh, spread predominantly through the synagogues of, of the first century. Jewish people recognizing that, that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the anointed one, and God's provision for mankind's need. Right? And, and so you had a Jewish population in Rome who were, who were believers. Um, the problem was the Jews were uh, um, kicked out of Rome by uh, Claudius in A.D. 49. Um, this is kind of an old, old world way of dealing with problems. Um, and it wasn't uncommon when, when there was unrest or tension in the air. Um, a lot of times the solution in the old world was to look around and say, who are the others and let's kick them out because it's their fault. Uh, that doesn't really feel that foreign to us today. Like that impulse, I think, is just as strong today as it was back then. Um, but it was more clear in the ancient world who the others were because the world was broken up into such stark and clear ethnic groups, right? So in Rome, the Jews were clearly outsiders. And as a result, when they hit turbulence, the Jews were exiled out of Rome in A.D. 49. Uh, in A.D. 54, Nero allowed them to return to, to, uh, to Rome, and so we saw Jewish people returning, Jewish believers going back and returning to Rome. But by this time, the, the nature of the church had fundamentally changed, right? The, the, the Jews were kicked out, and the Jewish believers had to leave with them, but the Gentile believers remained. The minority Gentile Roman believers remained, and, and they continued sharing their faith. And so the Jews returned to a very, very different kind of church, a church that was now predominantly non-Jewish that was made up of, of, um, of Romans. Um, so Paul is writing in AD 56, after they've been kicked out, after they've been allowed to return, after this transition in the church has taken place. And you're like, Steve, why are you telling us all of this? Are you just fascinated with, with details? No, I'm telling you this because we need to understand this background to understand the nuances of Paul's writing, right? We need to understand the context that he's writing to and the people that he's writing to, right? Um, we need to understand why he wrote, because if we don't, we're going to miss the subtlety. So, so Paul has a goal, partnership, right? Spiritual and financial partnership. And there's a clear barrier to that goal, right? Paul wants to invest in, in, in a mission in Spain, take the gospel to, to Spain, but getting the Romans to care about Spain wasn't as easy as that sounds, right? Getting the Romans to actually invest financially in a gospel outreach to Spain was countercultural because the Romans despised the Spaniards, right? The Romans despised everyone to the West. 
So this is what I want you to catch, because this comes up really, really strongly in the opening of Romans. The Jews despised the Gentiles. They saw the world as us and them. There's a circle, and inside the circle are the descendants of Abraham, the ones who have the Mosaic law, and, and that's us. We're the good guys, and everyone else, every other ethnic group in the world, the Gentiles, they're the bad, dog, bad guys. In fact, we call them dogs. That was just kind of how they, they're, they're us, God's chosen people, and then there are the dogs, right? Now, the Romans structured it differently, but they did the same exact thing. The Romans saw themselves as culturally elite, right? And they saw the Spanish as barbarians, right? A, a word that actually comes from them mocking their language. When they heard people speaking um, Spanish, they just heard bar, 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 and so they just called them barbarians, right? It was a way, a derogatory term, just like the, the Jews would call Gentiles dogs, the, the, um, the Romans would call the Spanish barbarians, right? And what I want you to see is that there's this common theme where we other groups that are different from ours. And we're the good guys, and, and they are the bad guys, right? The Jews saw the world divided along racial lines. The Romans saw the world divided along cultural lines. Um, and, and in the ancient world, there was no shared value of human dignity and valuing the underdog. It simply didn't exist. In the ancient world, they valued power and honor. And if you had honor, it gave you certain freedoms, right? If you had power, you could do what other people couldn't do. And what's the use of power if you don't use that power? So, so in the ancient world, it was very, very common for people with power to simply use that power. It was, it was common for, for people in the upper echelons of, of political influential power to abuse people in the lower levels. Right? They could simply walk down the street and commandeer people of lower power and force them right, to carry their stuff or to go their way. Or, or, or they could um, impose their wills in other degradating ways. I, I won't go into all the details, um, but the Roman culture was pretty brutal. Right? And, and, and there was no shared... Um, like the, we value, in the Western mind in America... We have this, we value humility, which is ironic because even in the broader culture, um, people value humility. We, we become masters of the humble brag, right? Uh, being able to brag while also appearing to be humble, right? If you have somebody who's overtly too proud, we're like, dude, act like you've been here before, right? It, it, it's, it's degrading to, to, to be um, so self-congratulatory, so self-promoting. We, we value humility. Um, that's because we actually live 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, and Christianity has absolutely transformed Western culture. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. I read a great book this summer called Dominion by a scholar named Tom Holland, and, and it traces the influence of, of Christianity through Western culture. Tom Holland is a scholar. He's not a Christian, um, but he makes a, a compelling case for how uh, radically Christianity has transformed how Westerners and, and through the West, the world, um, has it's changed the way we view life and humanity. This sense of shared obligation of, of human dignity, those are Christian ideas that come from the death and resurrection of Christ. They, they were not present in Rome. So, so how do you get people who don't value shared humanity 
to invest in humans they see of a lower degree than them. Why would they sacrifice for, for people they don't know? Why would they sacrifice for barbarians? Why would Jewish people sacrifice for Gentiles? There, there was no compelling reason. It was completely counter-cultural, right? We see in this, um, in this tension between the Romans and the barbarians and, and the Jews and the Gentiles, the universal human dynamic of worldliness that we all struggle with, right? Pride and shame. Pride and shame, right? And so when we see the early chapters of the book of Romans, he is bringing the gospel to bear on both. The internal operation of shame that causes me to pretend and perform, pretend to be what I'm not and perform to fix what I can't fix, right? I am driven because I know I'm not what I'm supposed to be. We all have that internal sense, right? That shame that kicks in that says I have certain things to hide. And there are other things I would like to platform and push out because those are the things that make me feel good and I'm going to hide the things that make me look bad. That is a universal experience of shame that comes from the fact that we're all sinners, right? That's that's the gospel comes to bear on that. But, But the gospel also comes to bear on the external working of that same impulse, right? Internally, it manifests as shame. Externally, it manifests as pride, right? So, so, I look at myself and I see all the flaw, fault, faults and flaws and I got to hide and I got to fix and I got to pretend and I got to perform. And then I find, look externally and I see all the faults in others. Well, I also f- see their strengths. So I have certain people that I, I positively, we might say, admire, but really we're just jealous of them. We envy what they have. We curry their favor because we want a little bit of their glory to rub off on us. And we also see those people we despise, right? So we see ourselves in a circle and we grow envious of those that are in a better circle than the one we're in. And we grow despising of those that are in a circle that we think is of a lower degree than ours, right? And we other them, right? There's a circle and inside this circle, there are the good guys. And for some reason, I'm always inside that circle. And outside of this circle are the bad guys. And I define those people as, as those that I, I can despise, people that I need to defeat, people that should be silenced, people whose power should be removed because they are a threat when they grow to be a threat to me. If they're not a threat to me, then I'm just content to despise them. Right? So those two impulses are the twin impulses of a single source, worldliness. My need to find the fullness of God apart from the God who gives it. My need to pursue the blessing of life uh, outside of humble dependence on the God who gives that blessing. So I need to fix myself and I need to compare myself to others. And in comparing myself to others and finding ways that they're worse than me, I subtly tell myself I'm better. Not only am I okay, but I'm superior to them. Maybe I'm not everything I should be. Maybe I'm not everything I was created to be. Maybe I have shame about, about certain things about myself, but at least I'm not them. And through comparison, this twin impulse allows me to puff myself up even as I tear myself down, right? And so I, I go through this process of, of um, shame internally and pride externally. And, um, and as a result, I go through life drawing these circles that ultimately keep me from loving God loving others, or honestly, even loving myself. 
I feel superior and justified in condemning those that I think are in an inferior circle. And so Paul is writing to the Romans with the gospel to expose this impulse, to speak to the internal dynamic of shame and to speak to the external working of pride. He wants to free them from pretending and performing internally and from condemning and competing externally. He wants them to stop othering others and he wants them to stop uh, shooting themselves. I should be better. I should be this. I should be that, right? He wants to free them into the humble confidence of the gospel, which frees them from the internal dynamic of shame and frees them from the external plague of pride, frees them from comparison to community. So that's the purpose and the setting. That's, that's what's going on in the background of this letter. Now, I want to give you a three-minute summary of what we've covered in the book so far. You ready? All right, we've got 15 messages. Message one was verses chapter one, verses one through seven, which is a super, super dense paragraph that says, hey, y'all, that's kind of the essence of it. Uh, but typical to Paul's openings, it actually previews a lot of the central themes of the book. And so message one was kind of digging in to that, to that opening of, of, hey, y'all, right? Message two looked at the next, next paragraph, which in ancient culture, the first paragraph was always a, an introduction. The second paragraph was a statement of gratitude. And so in the second paragraph, we see a statement of gratitude where Paul gives thanks to God through our Lord Jesus Christ for the Romans. Uh, but even there, he continues to push forward with some of the central themes, right? At the very end of that paragraph, he says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, right? So he's beginning this, this subtle uh, critique of this prideful othering that is present culturally in their, in their group. Message three looked at the next couple of verses, which I would say is really one of the overarching thematic statements of the entire letter, right? Verses 16 and 17. When Paul gets to this point, he basically says, look, let me give you the, the theme of what I'm going to dig into, and then, man, we're going to go into the weeds. We're going to get into the details. In verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which is a way of saying, it is my boast, it is my pride, it is the foundation on which I stand, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We took week three and unpacked this idea that the gospel, this message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the embodiment of the power of God to actually fix what we can't fix and to make right what we broke, to declare us righteous, even though we can't work for it, right? Um, and then coming out of uh, that, we jumped into the rest of chapter one, because there's a strong transition in verse 18, where all of a sudden he goes from, from welcoming and greeting and, oh man, it's going to be good to see you and hey all to boom, verse 16, for the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, man, there's a sudden transition into the body, the content, right? So the next message took a look at this idea. That, that God is, is upset, right? God's wrath has been revealed against what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
Since we've rebelled against God, we are continually seeking to ungod God, and, and we are being unjust in our behavior toward those created in the image of God. That's what that means. We're trying to ungod God. We're trying to take his seat and replace him with idols. And because we have put ourselves in the seat of God, we are unjust toward others. Instead of honoring them and loving them as those created in the image of God, we compete with them, destroy them, and seek to belittle them. We are unjust in our actions toward others. And God is not indifferent to our rebellion. God is not indifferent to our cosmic treason, right? Not only does it rob God of of the glory that is due to him in creation, it blasphemes God because we were created in the image of God. And yet, in the name of God, we misrepresent God. The wrath of God has been revealed. So week um, three, we dug in, uh, week four and five, actually, we dug into this idea that, that uh, mankind, because of their rebellion, because of their uh, personal rebellion, but also the fact that they've inherited a broken nature from their first parents, are determined to ungod God and, and to be unjust and unloving toward those created in his name. What's really cool about this, and I love the subtlety of this, is when you read through the end of chapter 1, Paul uses the word, the pronoun they, a lot. Right? When you're reading through, it's like, they did this, they did that, and they did this, and they were like that, and they were like this. So that the readers are like, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, they, they stink. Yeah, they, they deserve judgment, right? Well, the next week we got into chapter 2, where verse 1 says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Uh, he, man, he set us up for a beautiful sucker punch right there, right? He gets us looking at this group and we're all like, yeah, they're bad. They do this. They do that. And then he swings it around and he's like, you're no better religious person. In fact, you might be worse. You're sitting back in your self-righteousness judging them while you do the very things you judge right? Your hypocrisy is on display and your whataboutism doesn't protect you, right? If I point out your flaws, you can't get away by saying, but what about them? And what about them? And what about that? No, you are on display in your hypocrisy. You also do the very things you condemn, you religious people. The next week in message seven, We finished chapter 2 and saw that Paul went from talking about religious people in general to Jewish people specifically. And he does that on purpose. Uh, He does that because the Jewish people were given the Mosaic law. They, They weren't just religious people. They were religious people with God's religion, right? They didn't just use a general tool of religion. They used God's given tool of, of religion, right? And yet they ended up in the same spin cycle of hypocrisy that all religious people ended up in. That same trying to use their religious performance, uh, not necessarily to make themselves righteous, because they couldn't do that, but to make themselves better than those they perceived as unrighteous, right? And so he shifts and, and focuses on how the law that was given doesn't make them better in some ways. Uh, it, it has made their situation worse. Messages 8 and 9 um, were at the first half of chapter 3. 
In the first half of chapter 3, Paul brings a summary. And in this summary, he says, look, I've addressed the the non-religious idolater. I've addressed the religious moralist. I've addressed the, the Jewish person who is actually trying to live out the, the perfect law that was given to a broken mankind. And I want to bring it around to this summary, right? Basically, what he says is, look, we may be surprised as, as, as our hypocrisy is revealed to us, but God's never been surprised. God sees it all perfectly clearly. The real issue is we need to see it clearly, right? And so in the middle of chapter 3, we have this incredible combination of Old Testament verses that Paul strings together that show that God wasn't surprised, that in fact there are, there's none that are righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek after God. The poison of asps is under their lips, right? Even the religious people are simply using their religion to pretend and perform. Their self-improvement projects don't make them righteous, they just make them self-righteous. And it improves their ability to compare themselves to others that they perceive as as less religious, right? His purpose is to summarize all of us in one place, which we see in the middle of chapter 3, where he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's the goal of the first three chapters. Every mouth may be stopped. And he's, he's talking about the mouth of boasting the mouth of self-deception, the mouth of, of, of what about ism, right? I'm, I'm not that bad. What about them, right? That's all stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. He's inviting us through these first three chapters to recognize in humility our desperate need. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never given as a self-improvement project. It was given to show us that we can't improve ourselves. It was given as a perfect mirror to show us what we don't want to see, that we are, in fact, hopeless in our sin, unable to fix what we have broken. That brings, that's the first major section of the book of Romans, okay? So starting in verse 21, we transitioned from, from our desperate need to God's beautiful provision. Right, So Paul transitions. Now that he's brought everybody under a clear understanding that there is no other, right? There's nobody out there to condemn because whatever circle we create where we condemn others, we condemn ourselves. He transitions in verse 21 to God's gracious provision. And in verses, uh, excuse me, messages 10, 11, 12, and 13, I looked at the next paragraph. The next paragraph is one of the densest, most beautiful paragraphs in all of Scripture. In that next paragraph, Paul explains why Jesus came, how he accomplished our salvation through his death and resurrection, God's intent in sending Jesus, and how it all comes together for the gracious will of his offering us salvation, that Jesus satisfied God on our behalf by becoming our substitute, dying in our place as our hero. Our sin was imputed or given to him, and he died under the weight of it, bearing its full consequence and drinking the full uh, um, result of, of, of our rebellion against God and paying its price. So that as we who believe in Jesus, who has died and risen again, his righteousness can be imputed or given to us. 
right? Our sin was imputed to him. His act of righteousness was imputed to us. We are now covered as believers in Christ with the very obedience of Christ. And therefore, God can be both just because he's punished sin and the justifier of the ungodly. There is no internal conflict in the nature of God. He is both merciful and loving and just. He, he, he destroys sin while opening the door for those who are sinners not to be destroyed in the process so that we can be declared right even though we bring nothing to justify ourselves. Jesus was our substitute and he entered death in my place so that in his resurrection, I could join him in the place of blessing. This is an incredible gift that was given to us, Paul tells us, through grace. It's a gift to be received through grace. Not a goal to be attained through work. Not the result of self-improvement or self-effort or religious exertion. It is not um, a gift for the pious, for those who have been able to clean themselves up. It is a gift for those who recognize they can't. And they simply come in the humility of their humiliation, in their desperate need, and come to a God who makes an incredibly, unbelievably generous offer. Believe in me, receive this promise, and I'll give you the gift of life. He is the God who justifies the ungodly not the God who affirms the religious, right? He's not asking us to work to earn his favor. He's asking us to receive the work he's done so that we can stand in his favor. He is inviting us not to performance, but to humility. Not to earn a wage, but to receive a gift. And since this gift comes in the context of a promise, we receive it by believing it, right? That's, that's how you receive a promise. You believe the promise, and you believe the one who is giving you the promise. In chapter 4, Paul calls two witnesses, Old Testament witnesses, to prove his case because this is radically counterintuitive. The idea that God justifies the ungodly it would make no sense to the Jewish mind. The idea that God would justify the ungodly and the dishonorable makes no sense to the Roman mind, right? We are loved when we are lovable. We, we receive honor when we become honorable. We, we earn what we get, and yet the message of the gospel is you can't earn it, so therefore God gives it. So in, in 4, he calls two witnesses, Abraham and David. And he says, what did these monsters of Jewish history, these giants, uh, patriarchs of, of the Jewish faith, what did they experience? And in their own words and in the context of the, of the Old Testament, Paul shows that each one of them testifies to the same thing, that, that they have been justified by grace through faith, by receiving and believing the promise and the one who made the promise, they received a, an alien righteousness, not one they earned, but one that was given to them. All right, so that brings us up into chapter four. If you're still with me, thank you. <laughs> um, I know, technical, right? One of the reasons Romans is hard, but, but I just want you to bring us to this single point, right? Take a look in chapter four, verse 13. Now we covered this 
almost uh, nine months ago, right? But I just want to hit it. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham that his offspring would be the heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void, right? You don't, you don't tell somebody, I promise you, when, when it's something you have to earn. When, it, when you have to earn it, it's a wage, not a promise, right? The promise is, is null and void, right? Verse 15, for the law brings wrath where there is no law. There is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all the offspring of Abraham. Not just the adherents of the law, the physical descendants of Judaism who followed the Mosaic law, not just the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the one who comes and and isn't a physical descendant of Abraham, but still calls Abraham father because they share the faith of father Abraham, who is the father of us all, both Jewish and non-Jewish. This tension between the law and the gift, one of the central tensions we've unpacked so far in the book of Romans and we'll continue to unpack. Here's the thing. um, If our trust for our salvation, for righteousness, rested on our performance, our performance would have to be evaluated. And if our performance had to be evaluated, it would expose all of its flaws. And exposing all of its flaws, it would bring us under condemnation. There could be no promise because we would be trying to earn a wage and we would be paid the wage we earned, right? God doesn't come to us through the law, through performance. Instead, he says, receive it by faith, by trusting the God who made the promise that your trust, and I love that, might rest in grace, right? For the promise to Abraham, uh, verse 16, This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. I love that imagery. Instead of our shame trying to rest in our performance, which it never can. Instead of our pride trying to rest in feeling superior to others, which it can't. Our faith is invited to rest in the promise. Because the promise rests in grace. There is no sweeter place to rest than in the unconditional, unlimited love of God. A love that never grows tired, never gives up, never dims, never wavers. A love that has been shouted to us through the death and resurrection of His Son, but is also whispered to us in the continual compelling invitation to draw near, to set aside our need to pretend and perform, to set aside our need to hide behind our religious behavior, to set aside our need to compare ourselves, to find uh, advantage against others. It is the quiet invitation to rest in humility because we know we are loved as we are, where we are, to lay down our nagging shame, to step away from our exhausting self-improvement and self-salvation projects, to step away from our pride and the soul-withering need to despise someone as worse than ourselves, to step away from the insanity of our worldliness and simply rest to receive 
the gift of grace through a faith that rests in the promise. A promise that rests in the grace of God. This is the promise Abraham received by faith. It's the promise David received by faith. And it's the same promise that is extended to you and to me. Jesus died for your sins. And he rose again for your righteousness. Y'all, this is love. And that's the heart of the book of Romans. An invitation to rest in that love. All right, I look forward to digging in further with you guys as we continue. For now, let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the ability we have to dig in um, to this compelling logic and exploration of, of this incredible gift we call the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to genuinely hear the message, to understand not just the I don't know, the theological nuances and complexities of this beautiful letter, but that we might genuinely hear its overwhelmingly beautiful message. That we might not just be interested in the technicality or the structure or even the broad theology as much as we are interested in knowing and loving the God who is revealed in that theology. We thank you, Lord, that we are invited to stop performing and stop pretending, to stop comparing, stop despising, and to simply rest. To have a faith that rests in a promise, a promise that rests in grace. Awaken our hearts to the joy of that incredible invitation. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.